Hi, this is Steve Thompson, and today we'll be reading John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here! Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace! Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, What are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? they exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said, this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. I love John's account of the story of Jesus because he puts himself right in it. What we have in this gospel is something that fairly closely follows the pattern of ancient biography in the first century. In other words, this way of writing a biography is not unique to his time. But what is unique is that to John, this is so much more than just conveying information about someone famous. He has a stake in us knowing who this Jesus is so that we can trust in this Jesus. And he writes in such a personal manner. He needs us to know that he was there and he witnessed all of these things. And so he tells this story of something that might seem uncharacteristic of Jesus, something that sets him apart as clearly not just a miracle worker from a peaceful, sleepy small town. He was a passionate reformer and prophet. And John basically says, look, none of us understood what Jesus was doing either when we saw this happen. It was only after he came back to life did things finally start to make sense to us. Yes, he is passionate for getting worship of God right, but he also knew where all of this would end up for him. He knew that speaking out like this was going to cost him his life. We just had no idea at the time. Jesus actually knew that his own death was where all of this was headed all along. I believe that's what was going on in the heart of those closing thoughts to this section. And here I'm quoting again. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. Those words reach across time. He knows what's in all of our hearts. That's harsh. Because 
every reader of this book has now been brought in on the same level as those who were Jesus' harshest critics, his most verbal opponents, his would-be killers. And it's sobering to think that we are all capable of the same kind of thought process. When someone comes along with a message that doesn't just cut against what we believe or how we believe, but criticizes how we do things and invites us to something bigger, something higher, something more challenging, something worth dying for, but it's out of the blue for us. Well, then we have a choice to make, and the easiest choice is to drown out that voice calling us to change. We're all capable of this. Let's actually bring this down to a much less high-stakes issue. But it's a very real issue that I think this passage actually addresses. You see, worship was a really big deal for the Jewish people, and they had been worshiping at the temple for the same way for hundreds of years in the way that God had commanded. Sacrifices were necessary in order to worship at the temple. It was a dirty and bloody process. The sounds and smells of tons of people and all sorts of animals and animals dying. That was the sound of worship at that time. And so to make sacrifices easily available to any and all to worship seemed like a common sense kind of thing to do. And when you have people coming to worship at this temple from faraway countries, speaking different languages, and having different kinds of currency, then it kind of makes sense that there would be money changers available to make these transactions possible. But in all of those hundreds of years of doing things the same way and making things easier and more readily available, they had wandered away from the heart of worship that God had always been after and always has been after. They had somehow managed to make things about them while trying to worship God. And here again, we can easily get caught in this oh-so-human trap and way of thinking. I'll spare you a history lesson of how we've gotten to the current worship styles that we uh, have here and now in the United States at this point in world history, but I can guarantee you that it doesn't really matter what style one uses to worship. We are always capable of somehow making it about ourselves. For us, I suppose the temptation is to find a place that has the best preachers or teachers. Or maybe we need the place with the best kids program for our young families. Or maybe music is a priority for how we connect with God, so we prefer our own music style. Maybe it's the location. Maybe it's the people who are there that we get to worship with. It could be any number of things that we suddenly turn into consuming. Actually, let me just share with you one thought that has been steadily recurring in my mind ever since back when we did the Ephesians podcast series. If we long for our faith family to look like an ever-diversifying group of people because we want our community, community to be diverse in nationality, in ethnicity, in socioeconomic status, then even something as simple as our music may need to change. So what would it look like if we started doing more of our songs in Spanish? 
What if we started introducing music written by and performed by our African-American brothers and sisters? What if we, heaven forbid, needed to mix in something like country? Sorry to all of you guys who like country. I, I don't happen to enjoy country music, but these are musical preferences. And if these changes need to be made, then my musical preferences will need to die. I can't have it completely my way if I want to see a broader range of people being a part of my life in my in my uh, faith family. In short, it can't be about just me and what I like. It has to be about what God is about. Is God first and foremost? Then I think when it is truly a God-centered worship, the style or the experience could like look like absolutely anything, and it would still be great. It's, and I would still need to be good with it, but that's not human nature. That's certainly not how I would prefer it. Why do I bring this up? Again, I, I just picked one tiny area of worship music, um, but it could be anything. Are we making it about us? And to be clear, I don't think any of us are completely selfish and completely self-focused when it comes to how we do church. I don't want to paint any of us as these straw men, these evil people. Um, but yet these things creep in, in slow and insidious ways that we can be completely oblivious to. So I think it's worth us taking time to reflect and ask God if our hearts are properly and completely focused on him. Are our preferences submitted to his heart, which is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth? I'm going to wrap us up in prayer right now, but I'd encourage you to take a few minutes after I stop talking to just listen to what God might have to say to you. I know I'm going to do that myself. So Lord, would you search our hearts and see if there's any selfish ways in us that are clamoring for doing things our way? We're not looking for a guilt trip here, and I know you're not in the business of uh, taking us down guilt trips. I know that you have completely surrounded us by your grace, but at the same time, we don't want to be blindsided by discovering that we've got this blind spot that we never knew we had. So, Lord, would you just gently and mercifully point out to us the ways in which we are clinging on to ways that miss the mark of the heart that you're looking for. So speak to us now. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Have a good one.